Hello everybody. This is our seventh sermon looking at the book of the Revelation and this is looking at chapters 15 and 16. And the hope unveiled this time is that evil will be erased. Since lockdown began, I wonder how many of us have read a murder mystery or watched a police drama on the television. I would hazard a guess that many of us have. Emily and I have watched several. Why do we love detective stories so much? I think it's because we all have an instinctive desire for justice. And it delights us when finally it is done. Let's hold on to that thought and move on to a deeper question. Why do we have a criminal justice system in our country? Now, I'm no lawyer, but I think there are three key reasons. First, it gives dignity to human life. When the family of a victim hears a guilty verdict in court, it tells them that the life of their loved one has been valued. Second, it helps us to feel safe and promotes peace within our community. There are laws to protect us and prisons to keep us out of the reach of criminals. Third, it informs behaviour. Whether it be the rehabilitation of prisoners, the programmes in jail that help them to turn their lives around, or just the solemn warning of punishment that deters others from similar behaviour, the justice system is there to improve the actions and character of all people within the community. When justice is done well then, it is healing and restorative. It shows value in creation and humanity. Ultimately, it paves the way for peace and freedom for those who try to do right. Justice is a very good thing. We hunger for it, particularly when we're suffering at the hands of others. As we begin our next series section of Revelation, we are about to embark on another set of seven. As we have previously discovered, this is a clever device used to tell the story of the time between Christ's ascension to heaven and his second coming to earth. In the letter, there are three of them. In chapters 6 and 7, we had the seven seals. As they were opened, they told the story of how there would be suffering in the world. Some of that suffering would be particularly experienced by the church through persecution. The seven seals urged us in the church to hold on to Christ through it all. In chapters 8 to 11, we then had the seven trumpets. As these were sounded, we heard how God would seek to discipline the ungodly. Using plagues like in the Exodus story, God kept calling unbelievers, urging them to repent. The good news was that through the church's witness, in the end, many people do indeed turn to the Lord. But now, in chapters 15 to 16, we have the seven bowls. As these are poured out, we're going to read of what happens to those who remain stubbornly unrepentant. 
These chapters particularly concern the wicked who take pleasure in making God's people suffer. They will receive their due punishment. These chapters are hard to read. God's wrath clearly comes to bear on sin. Sin damages human beings, sin damages God's world, and God cannot stand for it to go on. In verse 1 of chapter 15, we are told that these seven bowls will detail the completion of his wrath. This is how God will do away with the perpetrators of evil once and for all. Yet despite these chapters being hard to read, and me finding this difficult to preach, our reading describes God's judgment in this way as marvellous, verse 1. In fact, the whole of chapter 15 sees God's dealing with the wicked as a cause for praise and celebration above and beyond our natural anxiety. This may surprise us, but it shouldn't do. It actually comes right throughout the Bible. If you look up Psalm 96 and 98, you will find the whole of creation, animal, vegetable and human, singing for joy because the Lord is coming to judge the earth. Why praise? Well, for all the reasons we thought of a moment ago. God's justice paves the way for peace and freedom. Knowing that God will come one day to judge the wicked and vindicate the righteous tells all of creation and all humanity within it that while they suffer injustice, God still loves them. This joy at God's judgment is perhaps found most clearly in the Exodus story. We know it well. God's people were being horribly oppressed in Egypt. They cry out in desperation and God hears them. God sends ten plagues, each giving the Egyptians the opportunity to do the right thing and let his people go. Eventually, after the tenth plague, the Passover, Israel are released from their captivity. But that's not the end of the story. Almost immediately on their release, Pharaoh's heart hardens one final time. He calls his army together and chases Israel to the shore of the Red Sea, attempting to recapture them. However, God will not let that happen. He miraculously parts the Red Sea, allowing Israel to walk through on dry ground. Once they have safely reached the other side, he sends the waters crashing back down on Pharaoh and his army, killing them all. You see, God had given them numerous chances to repent from their evil, but now he saw that they never would. Pharaoh would never stop hounding God's people, so now it was right for God to call time on his reign and his army. As the sea has swept away the evil Egyptian force, Moses has stood on the far bank watching on. When he sees God's justice complete, he breaks out into a great song of praise. It takes up the whole of Exodus 15 if you want to look it up. He sings out at the top of his voice, praising God for his judgment and thanking him for Israel's safe deliverance. Now we have remembered that story. Let's look back at the beginning of Revelation 15. 
Again, in his vision, John sees a sea. Standing beside the sea are a group of people. John tells us that these are the victorious ones, the ones that have passed through the waters of their trial. In the context of Revelation, we know that means that these are the martyrs who have died for their faith. They have refused to bow to Rome. They have refused to worship the emperor and they have suffered for it. But now, with life beyond the grave, God has vindicated them. So they now stand and take up their song of praise, just like Moses did. And we know from the Exodus story that what we are now about to see in the seven bowls are the waters of destruction crashing down upon their enemies. There is one verse of the martyr's song of praise that we need to particularly take notice of. It comes in verse 4. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The Old Testament tells us that when people from other nations saw what God did to the Egyptians, they sat up and took notice. Soon they started coming to Israel to find out more about their God. Strangely, God's judgment became a powerful witness to them. Here in Revelation 15, the martyrs sing the same. As God's judgment comes to bear on his enemies, others will take notice and turn from their apathy or disregard and take up the faith. This is a reminder to us that not all of what takes place in the following verses will be reserved for the final day of the Lord when Christ returns. In fact, the first five bowls poured out on the wicked take place in the world as we know it today, in our human history. God sometimes brings judgment on evil regimes and wicked persecutors of the church in our lifetime. Think of the fall of Rome, think of the fall of Nazi Germany or aggressive communism in Eastern Europe and the apartheid regime in South Africa. When God called time on these regimes of wickedness, he did it in such an extraordinary way that many people did indeed turn to him. But to those who were perpetrating these evils, it was too late. The time for repentance was over, now punishment was due and it often came with death. Hopefully now we have the background to fully understand this passage. The Exodus story and the events at the Red Sea are crucial. There is one final thing we need to notice before we begin the sequence of seven bowls. Verses 5 to 8 of chapter 15 tell us very clearly that they come from the throne room of heaven the tabernacle, the temple, the place where God dwells. In other words, God will not delegate judgment and punishment. It is so serious and so important, he oversees it personally. What we must hold on to as we read chapter 16 is that God is acting on behalf of the people and the world that he loves. He will ensure that perfect justice... Not vengeful or vindictive spite, but perfect justice is done. God is the holy judge 
and we can trust him to do what is right. As with the previous two sets of seven in Revelation, the first four bowls are poured out on the wicked in quick succession. In verses 1 to 9, God allows the natural elements of land, sea, rivers and sun to pass judgment. This is a reminder to us that human beings were made in God's image to look after his creation. We have always been made to tend to his world and care for one another. However, the wicked have done the opposite. They have defaced God's earth and abused his people. So now, as an act of restorative justice, God allows the natural elements themselves to turn on evil and judge unrepentant humanity for their destruction. It's a clear sign that God is acting on behalf of his beloved creation. Notice that the judgment of these four bowls is total. In the series of the seven trumpets, when God's discipline came on the earth, only a third of the land and the sea and the rivers and the sun were affected. That's because the seven trumpets were announcing a warning, not doom. They were signalling to human beings the need to repent. They were holding out an opportunity before it was too late. But now look. Bowl 1. All those who worship the beast get sores. Bowl 2. Every living thing in the sea dies. Bowl 3. All the rivers turn to blood. Bowl 4. The hot sun shines on all the earth. It's a very clear difference. This time round, the seven bowls are punishment. The time for repentance has sadly passed. Like Pharaoh, the people affected have hardened their hearts one time too many. These judgments are so severe in verses 5 to 7, we get reassurance from an angel and the heavenly court that this justice is holy, right and good. This is God acting true to his nature, not as a tyrannical bully. God has given his own son to die as the lamb to make forgiveness available to all. God has given chance after chance to repent. God has offered boundless grace. But if he does not now show his hatred for wickedness, as seen in the likes of the Roman Empire, he has ceased to be good. If he does not show his hatred for Nazi fascism, the slave trade, the apartheid regime, he has ceased to be loving. Because of his kind, merciful nature, God does not always step in immediately to call time on evil human beings. Often he lets them experience the natural consequences of their actions, giving them chance to repent along the way. But sometimes things reach such depths of depravity, he acts decisively to bring closure. In verse 10 of chapter 16, we reach the fifth bowl. If you remember from the previous two sets of seven, the fifth sign always applies the situation personally. The fifth seal applied the suffering in the world, particularly to the church. The fifth trumpet applied God's discipline directly to individuals. Here, the fifth bowl is exactly the same. 
As the fifth bowl is poured out, we read that it applies God's punishment specifically to those running the corrupt and persecuting systems of the world. The destruction falls directly on the throne of the beast. Remember from last week that the beast was a tool used by the devil to seduce people into worshipping him. In the first century, it was fulfilled by Rome as they tried to force Christians to worship the emperor. On these persecutors, a plague of darkness breaks out. It's another one of the Exodus plagues, carrying the same message. God destroys the oppressors so that the oppressed can escape. God takes down those systems in the world that have hardened their hearts so much they will never repent or treat people fairly. In verse 12 of chapter 16, we come to the sixth bowl. Now the imagery ramps up to such a pitch that just like with the sixth seal, we know that we're now talking about the final day, the judgment that will come when Christ returns. The sixth bowl is nothing short of the destruction of all the followers of evil schemes. It speaks of God allowing all the wicked to be drawn together in one place and him defeating them there in a final battle. Again, it's clear that God is at work in this. In the first century, Rome feared attacks from the Parthians in the east. Well, God is going to personally dry up all the rivers so that this army from the east can come sweeping in. Everything we've looked at in Revelation so far, we have interpreted as apocalyptic metaphor. So we should certainly not stop now. We're not to get our atlas out and look for Armageddon on the map. We're not to try and work out what date in the future this battle might occur. This whole scene is drawing on the imagery of Zechariah 12, which tells of the final defeat of Jerusalem's enemies. The name Armageddon probably comes from a place called Harmageddon, the hill of Megiddo, which was a place of a famous battle in the ancient world. So this is a metaphor for the day of judgment. But it still begs the question, why would human beings be stupid enough to go to war against Almighty God? Well, verses 13 and 14 give us the answer to that. They are lured by the devil and his two beasts. Verse 13 says that in his vision, John sees evil spirits looking like frogs coming out of their mouths. Frogs were unclean animals to the Jews. So this is unclean speech, deceptive lies and false claims. If you think about it, this is actually quite understandable. Rome and all coercive empires since then, have believed they could conquer anything. The rich and the powerful who've exploited the poor to their own ends throughout history have thought they were untouchable and unstoppable. I recently watched a documentary called Boys Banged Up. It told the story of young offenders in Northern Ireland. An arrival at the prison, these young men all feel invincible worthy even of the prison officer's respect. Some of them quickly get taken down a peg or two, 
others remain arrogantly cocksure for the duration of their stay and soon reoffend. This is what happens. The devil lures the followers of its schemes into thinking themselves untouchable. They think they can defy God. They think they can take him on. No one is more important than them. Of course, what follows is an absolute disaster. On the day of his return, the wicked will try and stand up to Christ, but they will lose emphatically. We will read the details in chapters 19 and 20. No one can stand at the final judgment. Not one person. God's wrath will be utterly overwhelming. Only those who've accepted the mercy and forgiveness of Christ have any hope. Again, this judgment is so severe, like in verses 5 to 7, we get another message from the heavens inserted in verse 15. It's a message aimed at all readers of Revelation. Do not get sucked into this crowd who think they can stand against God. Do not fall asleep. Christ could come at any point. Do not be lured by the devil and his schemes for a moment. This is deadly serious. In verse 17 of chapter 16, we reach the seventh and final bowl. But just before we describe it, there's something we must notice. In the series of the seven seals, there was a break between the sixth and seventh seal to encourage the church to hold on in faith. In the series of the seven trumpets, there was a break between the sixth and seventh trumpet, again to encourage the church, this time to encourage them to keep witnessing to non-believers, for some of them will repent. But in this series, there is no break. There is no pause between the sixth and seventh bowl. We are way too late for there to be any good news for those affected. These judgments come because people have remained stubbornly unrepentant. There is nothing left to offer them. They have met their end. Be it through death in this life through the first five bowls or defeat at the second coming of Jesus. By the time bowl seven is poured out, the wickedly evil, the stubbornly unrepentant, the persecutors of God's people and the destroyers of his creation have all been removed from the scene, never to return. So what can Bowl 7 possibly have left in store? Well, it's the eradication of their legacy. The seventh bowl describes a groundbreaking event. Again, as we've discovered before, this is apocalyptic language to describe something of huge importance that changes the world forever. Here it is nothing short of the transformation of all creation. The great city of evil is destroyed, rent in three parts, it's utterly irreparable. Again, the original readers would have been thinking of Rome. We can think of the heart of any evil power that stands against God. Then all the other cities of the wicked tumble around it, just like the collapse of Jericho in the book of Joshua. God then deals with the idolatry and blasphemy of Babylon. We'll learn what that means in the next chapter. But here it is the eradication of any satanic structures in the world that oppress vulnerable people. 
Finally, the islands flee away and the mountains dissolve. The entire social and political structures of the world are broken up to be replaced by the kingdom of God in all its fullness. As you would expect by now with Revelation, all of this is drawing on imagery from the Old Testament. I will name just two for now. The earthquake of verse 18 comes from Haggai 2.6. There it was the final act of judgment before the promised glory of God fully appeared. The hailstones of verse 21 come from Isaiah 28.17. In that chapter, God used hail to sweep away all the final vestiges of sin, particularly the refuges of all lies. With this, God's judgment is utterly complete. If bowl six brought about the destruction of the wicked, bowl seven is the complete erasing of their memory. God's good creation will not be stained by their legacy anymore. This is something that no human justice system can achieve today. Victims may be compensated for crimes committed against them, but they can never forget them. Often those crimes cast a cruel emotional shadow over the rest of their lives. But when Jesus comes again and defeats the wicked, he will transform the world in such a way there'll be no scars at all. The whole of creation will be fully at peace and totally free. It will be fully restored and perfected to all that it was created to be. We will live forever in the kingdom of God in full delight, as if the suffering and sin of our past and all those who acted so cruelly against us never even existed. After all the terrifying judgment, this is the good news of God's justice. This is why the original readers of this letter and us still today can read it with such gratitude and even begin to praise God for his wrath. So what is it that we are to take away from this bewildering passage? Well, clearly there is the unmistakable warning. We must not harden our hearts against God. We must not delight in wickedness. We must not throw our lot in with the oppressive schemes of worldly powers. Instead, we must hold on to God. We are to take up the martyr's witness and preach the gospel until our dying day. We don't know who will repent and who will harden their hearts to the point of no return. That's God's business. We must just keep offering hope. And we are to allow God to do the judging. As we forgive our persecutors, maybe they'll be led to the forgiveness of Jesus for themselves. But whatever is going on in our lives right now, and whatever is to come in the future, the great hope unveiled in this section of Revelation is that one day, Evil will be erased.